Climbing to the cockpit with pilot and Link Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Everybody and welcome to another episode of Cockpit Council. My name is Tim. I'm the Chief Legal Officer at LinkSquares, and today I've got with me one of the leading minds in the AI space, Rob May. Um, Rob has held a number of executive positions at a handful of different companies. I'll let him get into it. I, I wouldn't come close to doing it justice. Um, but uh, before we get started, we ask all of our guests, Rob, do you have a pre-flight ritual? Uh, I do, and it's a ritual that other people who fly with me hate, which is uh, I always check my bag. It doesn't matter if I'm going one night over whatever. It's like people are like, you're nuts. And uh, I've never lost my suitcase. I fly, you know, 40 times a year uh, for, you know, last 15 years. And um, but the reason I do it is uh, I really I have an explorer personality. I like to explore airports. I walk around a lot, you know, particularly if you get through security fast and you're just you're there. And so uh, it's really nice to go without dragging your luggage around. So, um, yeah, it's kind of unusual, but that's what I do. That's absolutely unusual. You're the, you're the first person that I've met who's just been like, I check all the time, right? <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it. I, I tend to be more along the lines of, I don't know if I'll have enough time to both check my bag and make my flight, right? So, uh, so I usually just, just exit that step and, and carry on whenever I possibly can, so. Awesome. Well, uh, Rob, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, the, the somewhat long and winding road that, that got you involved in, uh, in, in Link Squares. I know you're obviously uh, real close with the team here and would love to, uh, would love to just see how, how the journey brought you to where you are today. Yeah. So, uh, so I went to University of Kentucky. So go Wildcats. I'm a huge college basketball fan. And uh, got an electrical engineering degree and an MBA, and I um, went to work for a company called Harris. So I'm a computer chip designer training. That's where I got my start. Um, when I was down in Florida working for them, I started a master's degree in computer science uh, focused on artificial intelligence. And uh, I dropped out halfway through the program because this was, I don't know, 2005 maybe. And it was um, AI was like symbolic logic programming in Lisp, which if you don't know anything about AI technology, that is not what AI is today at all. And I remember okay. thinking, like, this is useless. So, um, so uh, I went to work for a couple of startups after that. I moved from engineering into sales and engineering business development and learned a lot about contracts, negotiation, and all that. Uh, and then I started a company called Backupify that did backup for cloud computing applications. Um, you know, we'll talk about this in a minute, but that's where uh, Vishal and Chris both worked for me at Backupify, the founders of Link Squares, uh, yeah. as did you know, a, a lot of the team that's there now. A lot of the executives yeah. came up through Backupify. Yeah. Um, that was a great company. We had a great run. Um, we sold the company to Datto in 2014. Uh, Datto, so I went to work at Datto for a year. Subsequently, they IPO'd, uh, and our product was doing, I don't know, 10 or 15 times the revenue. It was doing over $100 million in revenue for them. We probably should have awesome. held on to it longer. Um, <laughs> and then um, you know, then I started angel investing uh, with a heavy focus on AI in 2015, um, and uh, started another company called Tala. Was, did customer support chatbots. Um, Tala sort of went sideways, um, just wasn't really the, the home run that I was hoping for. 
So uh, we merged that in with another company, and then I uh, became a full-time venture capitalist, joined a firm called PJC as a partner. Okay. And um, at PJ, PJC, I led all their AI and robotics investing for a couple of years. And then we seeded a company called Dianthus that I uh, run now as the chief technology officer and founder. Uh, it was my idea and you know, brought it to the team and said we should do this. Um, we build Dianthus builds machine learning software for e-commerce applications, but we don't sell it to anybody. We acquire e-commerce companies in and we uh, use it to grow them faster and run them better. Um, Okay. Uh, Vishal and Chris from Link Squares are actually both investors now in, in my company. And um, yeah, it was just such an attractive opportunity. I had to leave the VC gig and come do it full time. Uh, so I'm, I'm back on the operating side now, which is, uh, uh, man, some days I regret it, but uh, it's it's pretty fun overall, you know. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I, how So how have you seen your... I mean, obviously, there's very clear differences in roles from from being an operator versus being an investor. What have you been able to bring with you now as an operator after sitting on that investment side? Like what are maybe two or three things that maybe somebody who's never worked in that space would be like, wow, that's weird. I never thought about that. Well, a lot of people don't understand the game theory of venture capital. So uh, sometimes people don't want to raise a lot of money, but you've probably heard the saying that like, you know, if you owe the bank $100,000, it's your problem. But if you owe the bank $100 million, it's the bank's problem. Right. And, and venture capital is a similar way. It's like if you, you know, if you don't raise a lot of capital, nobody cares if you go under. Um, if you raise so much capital and you're burning so much that like you, you sort of stay, you, you know, they, they can't keep you alive in a bad situation. But, you know, if you're like burn to capital raise ratio is good, you end up in this situation where they feel like oh, for a couple million bucks, they can keep you alive. Like. Uh, venture capitalists will totally do it. So when you can, when you've been a venture capitalist and you can incorporate how VCs think into how you operate a company and how you go fundraise, it's um, it's pretty interesting. And I definitely think investing makes you a better operator, and operating definitely makes you a better investor. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, I, you know, Vishal and I have talked a lot about this stuff over the years. He, um, uh, but, but it's funny because like I do want to be, you know, one of the really interesting things is like Link Squares has gone far beyond where Backup if I ever went when those those guys worked for me. Um, okay. And uh, you know, it's taken a lot of interesting turns and pivots. I um, when they first came to me, Chris, about a year after we got acquired, Chris and and Vishal came to me and said um, they're going to start this company, and it was it was not anything of what Link Squares is today. And I actually told them I was like, guys, this is a really dumb idea, um, but. <laughs> Because you both used to work for me, I'm going to give you some money. So I was a very early investor in Link Squares, uh, and now it's 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 my second best investment of all time, and I'm invested in 110 companies. So that awesome. tells you uh, how well it's doing, and it's just been really really impressive to watch the company grow and um, watch how Michelle and Chris have really navigated things. So uh, anyway, a little bit of a detour there. Sorry, but um, one you know, sorry one, that's how one I'm connected to Link Squares. One one quick question on that: uh, What do we need to do to be your best investment? Just so I can take notes here and make sure it happens. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Well, 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 you know, we'll have to see. I mean, my 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 uh, my best investment, I think, has decabillion dollar potential. So um, okay. it's a computer chip investment. And I think it'd be good. So you you guys got IPO. All right. Well, we'll see. Uh, I, I like the decabillion uh, goal post. I think that's a good one for us to, to strive to. Uh, you know, yeah. at, at least that's a good start, right? Um, awesome. So, um, so let's, let's turn, let's, let's turn directly into the AI. Um, you know, you, you are a thought leader in the space. You've been in the space for a long time. 
tell us, you know, what is the state of AI right now? Um, what are some trends that you're seeing? And for for folks who um, who maybe don't know a ton, you know, obviously most of our audience is uh, lawyers. I imagine some maybe have a, a a very surface level understanding of AI and sort of what goes into that uh, creating you know creating that artificial intelligence. Um, you know, maybe just a couple minutes on a crash course when you talk about AI. What do you really mean? And then what? How do you see things evolving? And um, and and where where the space is going? Yeah, well, the thing that I'll point out because a lot of people will say a lot of companies will position themselves as AI companies, and people will just say, well, they're you know they're using some thirty year old statistical techniques. That's not really AI. Um, in some cases, it actually is. So if you don't know a lot about neural networks, neural networks which have driven the modern version of AI, what I would say since 2015. Um, neural networks actually have been around for 30 or 40 years. We just never had enough data and compute power to make them work effectively. Uh, so that's what's driven this latest wave. Now, uh, there are other ways to do AI. So you don't need neural networks. There are Bayesian approaches. There's symbolic logic processing. There's what they call evolutionary algorithms. So there's a bunch of AI technologies that aren't popular right now that are starting to resurge given the popularity in, in AI. But uh, or neural network AI, I should say. But the way I typically define it is software that you can put out into the world and without you changing anything, it will adapt and learn and get better. So most AI companies are running some kinds of machine learning models. And what those models do is they take in a bunch of new data every day and then they retrain themselves at night and then they run again on the software the next day. So, uh, you know, a legal example in like the natural language processing space um, is you're trying to figure out, you know, again, you've got a, a hundred thousand contracts and you're trying to figure out like, uh, where are the indemnification clauses in all my contracts? And there are, you know, dozens or hundreds of pages and you don't want to read through all of them. And sometimes you can't always do a basic text search because people use different words and phrasing for things. Natural language processing based machine learning models can sort of analyze stuff and say, I know, I know these didn't use the exact same words, but they roughly mean the same thing. So, you know, you can, you can, you can pull those things out. So, um, so I think that's a really, um, really interesting type of application for AI. And then, you know, the other thing that I would to explain to like lawyers and people when you're, AI is simultaneously like overhyped, underhyped. It's really weird as a technology. The whole like artificial general intelligence, killer robots thing is way overhyped. Like we are, I see no evidence that we are on the track for that anytime soon. And I'm, I'm on the cutting edge of investing in this stuff. We're a long way from that. Uh, but the flip side is it's very underapplied in most organizations. And it's underapplied for two reasons. Number one, people don't know what to do with it a lot of times. And number two, when you first put it out there, uh, it very often, almost always underperforms the humans initially. And people don't want to give it the time to learn and get better. So when you're dealing with a machine learning model, it's like hiring a new employee. You know, they come in and you, first you want to look over their work and then you want to say, oh, this is good. This is bad. Do more like this. And, and then they can go run on their own. And a lot of machine learning software gets deployed that way. And it's part of the reason that sometimes these machine learning model, these machine learning driven investments, they lag what a normal SaaS company would do because SaaS is just super fast, you know, sign up and get going. Um, sometimes training on data and getting to learn what you need is, is a little bit slower. Uh, the one piece of feedback that I would give you and your the listeners on where to look to apply AI is I, I got asked in 2017 to do a talk on 
Like, where should you look? And so I came up with this framework that I call the PAC framework, uh, P-A-C, and it stands for um, uh, predict, automate, and classify. And those are the three common things that you can do with AI. You can use it to predict things better than a human can uh, or more efficiently than a human can. You can use it to automate things that you used to have to do, or you can use it to classify things into certain buckets, right? It's just a picture of a dog or a cat or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And um, and so the way that I have always advised people to do it is I would take each department of your business and I would, you know, make three columns. What could we predict about in this department that would help us run the business better? What could we automate that would help us run the business better? What could we classify that might help us run the business better? And then I would go through and I would see like, you know, you're going to have buckets of things and some things are going to be feasible and some aren't. And I would, you know, take those to your data science team and figure out the two or three that you could pick off and actually work on given the fact that you need a lot of data to make it work. And, um, you know, you need some time and some patience. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, getting back to maybe just the very beginning, talking about AI and how, you know, you said during the day it goes out and does things and then at night it learns. How do you how do you verify the integrity of what it's learning? Right. Like, how do you make sure that the AI that you're building slash developing, um, growing is getting the right input to like getting correct data, right? As opposed to drawing conclusions on things that are, you know, maybe not, uh, not what you would intend them to be. Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm sure one that keeps many lawyers up at night, uh, because depending on the AI techniques that you use, some of them are what we call explainable, meaning that you can inspect the machine learning model and figure out why it gave the output that it gave. And other times, uh, like most neural networks are not explainable, meaning that you don't understand why it gave the output it gave, because if you open it up, it's a bunch of nodes and each node has a weight like 0 0.3, 0.28. And you don't know what those nodes mean. Okay. So it causes a lot of problems uh, sometimes. Uh, and it's part of the reason that AI is underapplied in areas where um, you, know, you might get in trouble for uh, gender discrimination, racial discrimination, you know, because even if you like, let's say you don't even put race into a machine learning model as an input, it could still pick up on secondary factors that correlate with race and it could learn to discriminate. So, and, and it would be hard to figure out from the model that that's what's going on. So, so you have to be really careful. There's an emerging suite of tools that uh, help you monitor and do this because it's, it's also harder to test because you, you have to figure out like, um, you know, in normal software, you have what's called regression testing, which are like, here's the 100 tasks the software has to do. We made some changes. Does it still do the 100 tasks the same way? You know, machine learning models are trying to change and get better and give you better answers. So you can test them with regression uh, techniques, but they may not be as complete as they were for, for other software. So uh, it's definitely creating uh, a little bit of open-endedness that makes people uncomfortable sometimes. Um, but you know, you can, you can incorporate best practices. I mean, the best thing to do is make the people that are working on AI aware of these potentials. So they're on the lookout for it and they're thinking about it every step. They're looking at the data, they're analyzing the data, making sure the data is clean and structured and looks good. Um, they're thinking about the way the models are built and they're supervising the output um, and regularly testing that. So that, that would be my advice to everybody. It makes a ton of sense. And so when you think about, uh, and you also mentioned sort of AI uh, being 
both uh, sort of overestimated in terms of its capabilities and underestimated in terms of its capabilities or usefulness. Um, let's let's dig into that a little bit more, um, you know, and and more or less in the context of how useful AI can be today, and maybe what are some obvious next steps that you see uh, people are whether whether it's in talking to folks who you may be looking at for investment purposes or even just within, you know, within your own organization to the extent that you feel comfortable, um, you know, disclosing some of the, some of the secret sauce, so to speak. But I uh, really would love to, to get your thoughts on, on where we're going and, and how we should be thinking about, you know, what is the, the immediate future of AI, let's just call it the next two years, five years. Yeah, so that's a great question. So the most interesting thing that's happening, in my opinion, what they would call multimodal training, and um, multimodal training is when you take two modes of data input and you train them together in a single model. So the most famous example of this that came out recently is called DALL-E, D-A-L-L-E-2. Uh, it's the DALL-E 2 model from OpenAI. And what they did was they trained a bunch of images on the text description of those images and they trained them together. When you do that, what you can do is if I upload an image, you know, I upload a picture of this marker and DALL-E 2 will spit out a description of this marker. Okay. Even is I can upload some text like you know purple dry erase marker with a red cap or whatever. I mean this doesn't have a red cap, but and Dolly will create that image from scratch, which okay. is pretty cool. So when you think about the implications that has for content creation and automation, uh, they're both amazing and terrifying. Like on the one hand, like wow, how awesome is it as a business? to be able to automate this process and create a lot more content that's useful for your customers and your prospects and all that. As a consumer, how terrible is it to think about, it's easy for everybody to create eBooks and webinars and web paper, you know, whatever white papers and whatever else. Um, so, so that's something to think about. Um, you know, and there's gonna be some really interesting legal implications for some of this stuff. So I'll give an example of something that we're working on at Diantha. Um, we so one of the ways that consumer goods market themselves more and more frequently is influencers on Instagram. And to be honest, like these influencers, they're kind of a pain in the ass to deal with. A lot of more prima donnas. They ask for way more Shopping. money than they should. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and more importantly, they they believe those of us who are older know that like you're going to have your time, and Instagram's going to die, and it's it's already like turning to TikTok, and it's going to be something else and something else every seven years or whatever. Yep. Um, and they think they're going to own the world forever, right? Um, so, like, how do you get around this and how do you scale this? Um, AI technology for creating virtual humans is right on the cusp of feasible. So uh, we have created some virtual influencer accounts, and we're 100% open that these are synthetic people. They're not real. Uh, okay. But they gain followers because people want to follow a story. Right. So rather than have to deal with influencers and negotiate and all this, we can have an intern who can manage five influencer accounts that we have and create pictures in an hour every day of things these influencers do and post them. And people follow along. They like the story. They engage with the influencers. And then every once in a while, we haven't started doing this yet because it's too new, but every once in a while, we'll you know, slide in one of the products that we uh, make or have acquired. So um, you know, there's a whole bunch of legal implications, I think, around as all the virtual stuff starts getting more human-like, uh, a really interesting example is if you're talking to a chatbot or you get a phone call uh, and it's not a human, but it's indistinguishable from a human, do you have a right to know that? 
Should there be a law that tells you that you're dealing with a bot instead of a human? Should the bots have to register somewhere? Should the bots have to disclose that they're a bot? Like, um, you know, if yeah. what if they're better than, what if they're more human-like than humans? Then do you care that it's a bot? Like, it's it's a fascinating thing to think about. Yeah, that's that's wild. I, I never would have imagined that. But I mean, everything from, I mean, obviously like different types of legal implications that could be associated with that. But I, even just like, you know, sort of a social responsibility as well. You can see where, where you know, creation of, I mean, creation of content on social media has been what for the last at least six years, probably closer to 10, has been a pretty hot button, hot button issue. Um, you know, yeah. globally, uh, which is, is kind of crazy to crazy to think about. Um, and, you know, I think it, it gives that like healthy or it should give a reason for that healthy dose of skepticism that, um, you know, that I think uh, most people would probably be pretty good to, to adopt. Um, so let, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, Diantis. Um, you've got a legal team there. To yep. talk to me, talk to me about, and and you're relatively early, like you know, uh, we we were talking, we were talking before we kicked off here, and you've got, you know, you've got under 200 people globally, right? Um, and and 70, you said, I think you said 70 in North America, about 110 worldwide, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, you know, that's that's right about the time for a first in-house counsel, but it seems like you've had uh, your your legal team in-house uh, in place for a while. Uh, Tell me how you're thinking about, or how you were thinking about that legal team. What what was the real driving force for you to bring in counsel, and what were your expectations uh, from from that team as as it started to build? Yeah, well, you know, any startup has a lot of legal issues to deal with. You have financings, you know, you're raising money and all that. You have employee issues and options and you have you know business contracts with other people, um, but on top of that, we are uh, we have a lot of patent things that we're looking at. We've we've created some pretty novel technologies across a couple of areas, and then on top of it, we um, we're acquiring a lot of small e-commerce companies, companies that are two to twenty million dollars in revenue, some as stock purchase agreements, some as asset purchase agreements, um, and so I quickly like looking ahead, like a you know good founder should do. I realized that one of our biggest expenses, like our legal expenses, uh, would blow up if we didn't have somebody to triage and help. So we hired a general counsel, like for probably like our twelfth employee. Okay. And so yeah. it's it's really challenging with um, to think about like, you know, lawyers don't normally join companies this small and um, at the way the way we were when he came in. And so it's like, what do you need in some of that? And I think hiring hiring lawyers for startups in house is already tough because. Um, you know, people that are drawn to law and study the law uh, are not the first ones out the door to take a massive risk and start a company uh, or join a company that's like, particularly in the early days, like likely to fail. And right. um, and so I happen to know through a mutual friend, a guy who um, named Michael Salmon, who was um, Harvard Law grad, had left the law firm that he practiced at for many years, about a know, maybe eight years ago, he left to do a startup. Startup didn't work out, but he had that experience and he understood a lot of what it meant to work for a startup, which was very, very valuable. Uh, and then he had done some M&A law um, and had done investment banking before he went to law school. Okay. So for me, I'm like, per perfect fit. And I already know the guy. Yeah. 
So I reached out to him and he was pretty skeptical at first, but we convinced him to come and he's, he's doing a really great job. You know, the thing about the founder tension with, with legal is, um, you know, legal's always trying to minimize your risk. And I've had to have the conversation a lot of times, like at my last startup, I was not very involved in the legal stuff because I was like legal and accounting and financing. I would put all that off on somebody else. And so what happened is like we would spend a lot of money doing things like we spent thousands of dollars to like rewrite our offer letter. And um, and when I'm like, why are you doing this? And they're like, well, you know, the law firm said it should look this way. And I was like, the law firm wrote our last one two years ago. Like, why do they want to rewrite it? Well, things have changed. And I'm like, aren't offer letters like legally non-binding in Massachusetts? Right. And they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, then why do we need to spend this money, right? Like I, like having a conversation and getting people to think about like, I'm okay to take this risk. And so the way that I like to walk, work with lawyers is to explain to them like, look, here's what I want to do. You tell, like, I don't like the lawyers to make recommendations to me of what we should do. And I particularly don't like it when they're like, really kind of like some of the big law firms for startups really do this. They kind of strong arm you into like, look, you're gonna do it this way or like, we're gonna work with somebody else. But I think the job is to lay out for me, like what are the options of various risk levels and then I, as the business leader, like decide how much risk I want to take on um, and, and, and what we might do. So, so let me give you an example of how that plays out at Dianthus. We, obviously, when you're acquiring small companies, there's a million things that could hit you on the back end, sales tax liability being the biggest one. Um, yep. but, uh, but obviously, lots of other, you know, product liability and all these things. So the way we approached this said, look, let's just assume that we cannot draft a contract that will get us out of this 100%. Uh, and we need to move fast. So what do you do? We said, well, what's an acceptable error rate on a revenue basis? So if we're going to acquire $10 million worth of revenue a year via these acquisitions, um, and we are off by 3%, 5%, 7%, like the cost that comes back to burn us, um, what's the acceptable level for that in return for moving fast? Um, and we determined we would start with 4% and we would see. And so, you know, we on a risk adjusted basis, we can tolerate 4% worth of mistakes financially. And right. we think that's acceptable uh, in terms for being able to like maybe move two weeks faster on getting a deal closed and not do the, you know, fine tooth comb diligence that we might do otherwise. So um, yeah, so it's, it's, and it's, and so it's hard to find people that are comfortable with that, you know, and, and want to think about the world that way, but Michael's done a great job for us. That's, that's great to hear that you've got the right person in the right seat there. You know, it's uh, it's definitely something that I've seen. Uh, so I've, I've been fortunate enough to spend my entire career uh, in-house. I, I haven't had to go through the torture of being in a law firm, thank goodness. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I've seen attorneys really struggle with is that transition from being a law firm lawyer to an in-house lawyer. And, you know, some of it is some of it is training. Right. Some of it is training where, you know, the, the law firm will will give direction that needs to be of a certain sort of a certain level of risk tolerance. And uh, what what I've seen attorneys struggle with is understanding that the advice that's given is throttled through the lens of risk, as opposed to like like like, like these attorneys will say, like, oh, no, you can't do this or like this is way too far. And it's like it's unlikely that that's way too far. Like that's probably way too far for your law firm to be able to recommend that course of action and stand behind it. But it's absolutely nowhere near way too far for the entrepreneur to take that risk. 
right? And sometimes it's a risk right. that you have to take. And so seen, I've seen attorneys really struggle with that. Um, so uh, listen, I know we're running up on time. We did get a couple of questions here and, and I, you know, I, we've got time for one or two here. I wanted to, to get this one for you. Advice, so you, you've hired and built teams, not just legal teams, but when, when you think about building your company, building the teams within the company, and even in your investments, when you've seen people who have been able to build really strong, high-performing teams, are there some, are there some common themes with those high-performing teams or, or the ability to scale in that way? That, that you've noticed, or is there any advice that you can give to anybody who's building, you know, building a team, whether it's a legal team or, or otherwise, um, uh, that, that maybe you could, you could help, uh, help along with and something you maybe wish that you knew 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Yeah, so I, so I, have, so I have two lessons on hiring that I think are really important. The first comes from, if you've ever seen the movie Miracle about the 1980 hockey team, there's this scene where the coach, Herb Brooks, um, submits the list to the assistant coach and says, you know, these are the players. And and uh, and the guy looks at me and he says, Herb, you left some of the best players are still on the ice. And he says, I'm not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the best team. And one of the things that people really hone in on is they want to hire the best person all the time. But you have to think about team chemistry and what you need on a team. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm a Kentucky basketball fan. So, you know, John Calipari has these great recruiting seasons every year and recruits a bunch of the best kids getting a bunch of number one recruits to play together is sometimes really hard and the last time they won a championship you know what they had they had a couple of people that have been there for a while that weren't like going to turn into nba superstars but yeah. they were good team players and made everybody else work at it so, so you got to think about the whole team dynamic and what you need on that team in different roles and then the second thing is um and this helps with this helps with culture and diversity and everything else but a lot of times if you think about a bell curve distribution of talent your people that are on the far, far, far right, your people that are like the top one half of 1% of performers, they often look, their resumes look like the people on the bottom, right? Yeah. They've been all over the place. They've done a whole bunch of things. And so you're like, okay, you either don't know what you're doing or you're a polymath who's bored by everything. You have to interview them to know. Seven out of 10 times, you're going to be like, I wasted my time. You're terrible. But sometimes you're going to be like, wow, these people are really interesting. So I make my teams interview 10% of the candidates should not meet the job description. And the reason that I do that is because number one, it, it lets people sneak in who might be like bad at writing resumes, but like, you, you know, if you're like, I'm interviewing people, I got to pick two people that, you know, don't meet the standard, who are the best two that don't meet the standard that at least might be interesting to talk to. Like that's a good, you know, um, a good thing to pull in. And then, uh, you know, and then the other thing about it is it makes sure the standards, right. Like if you're yeah. saying you need seven years experience, you got to be an Ivy League school or whatever, and you're interviewing a couple of people that I've forced you to interview now that you're like, wow, they went to University of Wisconsin and they're amazing and they, I didn't think they would be. It's like you can recalibrate your hiring sometimes. So um, those would be my two pieces of feedback. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's great advice. Rob, it was awesome to catch up. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to do this with us today. Um, and Really looking forward to having you by the office uh, uh, very, very soon here. So thanks again. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Tim.